Seth Kim Cohen places rock and roll next to conceptual art, post-structuralism and politics, foregrounding it as an active participant in a wider social conversation. Focusing on 1965 to 1985, rock and roll is no longer just a soundtrack to a generation but is equally responsible for greater transformations of the time. Seth Kim Cohen is an artist, musician, and writer who makes as little distinction between these categories as he can get away with. Thank you very much. Thanks, Joel. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Thanks to Manash for uh, hosting this event. Uh, and thank you all for taking time uh, to be here. Uh, it's a very nice turnout for a midday lecture. Um, I might say just a word or two about how the presentation I'm about to give fits into uh, the research I've been doing over the past 10 years or so, um, just to give it a little bit of context for those of you who have no idea who the hell I am. Um, my work um, has, ha, over the past 10 years, has generally been uh, sort of directed at the way sound has been received in the visual art world. Um, and uh, against certain conceptions of sound that uh, take sound to be a kind of privileged medium, uh, because it, it's immersive, because it's ephemeral, because it somehow avoids the kind of trappings and, of language. Um, I, I've been sort of uh, arguing uh, against those ideas of sound and trying to talk about sound through, a, through an art historical lens and also through a kind of uh, literary theory lens and a, a post-structuralist uh, lens as well to try to give uh, some tools uh, about how sound can be thought about and used in the art world in ways that are in fact um, signifying, that they relate to the world at large, to issues of economics and gender and race and politics and so forth. Um, so that's kind of the big sense of, of how I've approached my work about sound over the past 10 years. Uh, this uh, talk I'm about to give uh, is the beginning of a new book where I want to talk about um, how rock and roll practice from, the, from 1965 to 1985 uh, figures into some, some of the conversations uh, of, that, of those eras um, from the mid-60s to the mid-80s. Um, and connect, connecting rock and roll practice in, in more direct ways to conceptual art, post-structuralism, politics of those eras. Um, not So rock and roll doesn't function simply as a kind of backdrop, background, soundtrack of a generation kind of thing, but where rock and roll is an active participant in the transformations that, that we normally uh, acknowledge uh, for the other three terms in the title. Um, so that hopefully that gives a little bit of a sense of where this will be coming from. Yeah, so with no further ado. Alexander Rochenko once said, if you want a carrot skin, you've got to be appealing. Of course, in Russian, it's not nearly as clever, but because there was no one there to record Rochenko's utterance, he was saved from exposition. Which is to say that none of this is true. That histories, art history, personal history, history with a capital H, are all fallacies too subject to the gross and conspicuous errors that are not exceptions, but rules, not bugs, but features of anything we're inclined to call meaning. This is precisely what I will discuss with you today, histories and language, meanings and recordings, and finally, gross and conspicuous errors, hereafter referred to as G and C E. Before we get to all that, I would like to thank you all for being here, and in particular, I'd like to thank Joel Stern and the staff of uh, Liquid Architecture for inviting me to come uh, to Australia for a couple of weeks to do quite a lot of stuff, uh, and it's been a great opportunity, and it's been a lot of fun so far, uh, with more to, to follow. I'll begin today by playing two short video clips. I do this in a transparent attempt to draw you in, to persuade you to invest in the transaction I'm about to initiate, or more benignly, to encourage you to partake of the dialogue that every monologue is. And it's only fair to inform you that what I'm about to present is in fact about the differences between persuading and encouraging, between investing and partaking, between transaction and dialogue. The first clip is from a longer video made collaboratively by the band The Red Crayola and the conceptual art collective Art and Language. The title of the video is Nine Gross and Conspicuous Errors. It was made in 1976, the same year that the Red Crayola and Art and Language released the first of several collaborative records.
it is a G and C E. The desire socialism with capitalist desire. Capitalism is in the mode of thought itself. It reveals itself in the preposterous reification of psychology. As if psychology is discrete and ontologically distinct from ideology. It is in the capitalist mode of thought to keep things separate. To keep the particular from the totality. To keep us disunited so that its own servants capitalist priesthood of managers and entrepreneurs of every variety can unite us again to serve their cause and their class the power elite so despite all the lofty leather chair philosophical on the mind-body dualism the representatives of Clarky House culture can't put the world back together again. The second clip is from the British television program Top of the Pops, which features performances of songs which have landed in the top 40 of the British pop charts. The artist is the band Scritti Politti, performing their song Absolute on June the 14th, 1984.
So what I'll do over the next uh, 40 minutes or so is to connect these two clips, the performances they capture, and the aesthetic politics of the artists involved. I'm currently working on a book with the tentative title, The Future of No Future, Rock and Roll, Conceptual Art, Post-Structuralism and Politics, 1965 to 1985. And rather than an uncritical celebration of rock and roll's cliche values of rebellion, authenticity, and freedom, the future of no future wrestles with the contradictory impulses and employments of rock and roll between those years, 65 and 85, exploring the ways in which rock and roll challenges the formalist conceptions characteristic of aesthetic modernism. From the late 1960s onwards, rock and roll's attitudes towards its own objects, sounds, images, and narratives suggest an aesthetic position in which the work of rock and roll, the song, the performance, is highly dispersed and reliant on its supplements, album covers, fashion, equipment, hairstyle, biographical narratives, and relations to the history of rock and roll and contemporary expectations within the field. Of course, the late 1960s is also when conceptual art emerged as a pointed response to both the mythological modernist conception of the artwork and artist as transcendent entities, unburdened by the quotidian concerns of the real world, and to the burgeoning art market rapidly becoming synonymous with the art world. One strategy employed by conceptual art was to undermine the centrality of the art object. The work accomplished by the artwork could no longer be said to be wholly and self-evidently in the image or the object. Instead, conceptual art accepted and then insisted that artworks disperse in language, performance, time, thought, and as Lucy Lepard so famously put it, dematerialization. But I'm also uh, committed to questioning rock and roll's efficacy as a vehicle for political or social change, given its ever-compromised status as commodity. Never before had an art form been tasked with balancing all the burdens of aesthetics and politics, communalism, and capitalism. The dematerialization promised by conceptual art was already a feature of music, yet perversely this very dematerialization seems to rob music of its philosophical and anti-commodity potency. Instead, it operates either as an excuse to turn on, tune in, and drop out, or as a hollow signifier of freedom, rebellion, and personal realization, usually white and male. The history traced by the future of no future is framed at the outset by the global radicalism of the late 1960s, which came to a head in 1968, as critical events occurred nearly simultaneously in the Americas, Europe, Africa, and Asia. From the folk movement's new world to come in to the near collapse of France's Fifth Republic, the inevitability of democratic capitalism seemed suddenly in doubt. At the close of the period in question, uh, so in the mid-80s, the, the dark optimism of the 60s had been replaced with the bright pessimism of the 80s, played out in the spread of neo neoliberalism under Reagan and Thatcher, old worlds and old money, entrenching themselves anew against the perceived capriciousness of flattened hierarchies and relativized values. Starting tonight with the formation of the Red Crayola in 1966 and ending with the appearance of Squiddy Politi on top of the Pops in 1984 allows me to present something pretty close to the full time span of this project. For our purposes, the Art and Language Collective is the golden thread that allows us to, to traverse Ariadne-like, the labyrinthine aesthetic expanse between the Red Crayola's shambolic agitprop and Squiddy Politi's chart romanticism. Founded in 1967 in Coventry, England, art and language have always been the most rigorous, linguistic, Marxist conceptualists of all. Tellingly, their early energies were directed not toward an exhibition, but into a journal, Art Language, which began in 1969. Art and language have survived to this day, riding out the comings and goings of scores of members and a bicontinental split when the English and New York contingents came to intellectual blows during the 1970s. We don't have time today for a detailed account of the art and language project, but suffice it to say that art and language position themselves at the vanguard of a philosophical and political revolution in the art world, rejecting formalism, image, images, the market, the cult of genius, and nearly anything else that emitted even a faint odor of the modernist paradigms propping up everything from Manet to Motherwell. Their activities in the late 60s were motivated by a Marxian rejection of market capitalism in general, but more specifically of the market takeover of artistic production and reception, and of the co-optation of the critical values that obtain at both ends of this exchange. Art and language embraced the so-called linguistic turn in philosophy as a justification for discarding the, ex the exchangeable art object. 
What they retained in their collective practice was language, the discourse that traditionally is thought of as supplemental to, or sub, uh, sorry, as supplemental or subsequent to the proper work of art. This strategy situates art and language as central to the conceptual turn of the visual arts in the late 1960s. More profoundly than any of their contemporaries, art and language mapped the conceptual turn in the visual arts to the linguistic turn in philosophy. By the mid-1970s, art and language had turned almost entirely away from object and image making in favor of the production of texts. In 1972, for instance, at Documenta, the international group exhibition that is staged every five years at Castle, Germany, art and language contributed, uh, their contribution entitled Index 01 consisted of eight filing cabinets containing texts published and distributed by the collective over the previous few years. Here's an example of the type of texts uh, and language that the collective were producing at that time. Artists are members of an essentially bourgeois social section and thus cannot participate in progressive class struggle so long as they retain and promote the integrity of mere intrasocial interests. For the artist, ideological interaction must follow upon class analysis and upon ideological penetration of class barriers. Now, there are not many things that have happened in the geological, artistic, or social history of this planet that are more surprising than the fact that in 1976, art and language collaborated with the Red Crayola. The Red Crayola, originally spelled with a C until US trademark law forced them to spell it with a K, formed in Houston, Texas in 1966. Part of a small underground psychedelic rock scene that included the 13th floor elevators, they released their debut album, The Parable of Arable Land in 1967. The one consistent member of the Red Crayola from then until what is, what is now their 50th year is Mayo Thompson. And it was Thompson who in 1972 handed a copy of his solo album, Corky's Debt to His Father, to Michael Baldwin and Philip Pilkington of Art and Language's UK branch. Four years later, um, at the same time, the two groups collaborated on the video Nine Gross and Conspicuous Errors, from which the clip that we watched earlier was taken. Uh, the collaboration yielded an LP, which carries the title Music Language, as if the journal Art Language has mutated into an audio format. So on the left, you see the journal with the hyphenated Art Language, and then this is the back cover of the LP, uh, Music Language, with the hyphen, uh, which also carries the title Corrected Slogans. And this is, corrective slogan is how, slogans is how the, uh, the album is generally known now. Um, and here's a song uh, from that album entitled An, An Harangue.
What we see and hear in this collaboration is a very early example of rock and roll meeting art practice on its own terms. It is also a very early example of rock and roll confronting its own contradictions. Corrected slogans, the album, and Nine Gross and Conspicuous Errors, the film, both balance on the knife's edge between opposing positions, militancy and slapstick, high art and incompetence, philosophical complexity and reductionist nonsense. Ultimately, the Red Creole and art and language resist the signifiers that would allow them to be comfortably subsumed by categories such as psychedelic or punk, but also by broader categories like entertainment or product. In a sense, what they do is simply opt out of the game as it is played. In doing so, they effectively remove themselves from the push and pull of definitions and influence that codify the history and values of a practice. Squiddy Politi respond to a, very, uh, to a very similar set of concerns, but eventually pursue a very different strategy to resist stifling musical conventions and market forces. Squiddy Politi formed, as did so many bands in England, after seeing the Sex Pistols, The Clash, The Damned, and Johnny Thunders on the infamous Anarchy in the UK tour. The tour stopped at Leeds Polytechnic University on December 6, 1976, and after the gig, Green Gartside, a student at Leeds College of Art and Design, conscripted fellow art student Tom Morley to play drums and persuaded his childhood friend, Niall Jinks, to move to Leeds to play bass. They adopted the name Squiddy Politi, a bastardized transcription of the Italian for political writing meant to simultaneously conjure a Gramscian conception of history and Little Richard's Tutti Frutti. <laughs> In the years immediately following the initial upheavals of punk from 1976 to 1982, rock and roll developed new relationships with the visual arts. In both the US and the UK, bands formed at art colleges incorporating elements of Dada, performance art, and Fluxus-inspired methodologies. At Leeds College of Art and Design, conceptualist approaches were in the ascendant. But as Simon Reynolds points out, this brand of conceptualism was starkly different from the playful process-oriented art school sensibilities that a sensibility that informed Wire and Talking Heads. Influenced like his Leeds contemporaries Gang of Four and the Mekons by art and language's hardcore critical sensibility, Green would come to think of that style of post-Eno art punk as formalism, decadent and disengaged, arty for artiness's sake. So that would be the kind of conceptualism that um, the Talking Heads and, um, and Wire were practicing. Squiddy had political motivations for messing with musical structures. They wanted to create revolutionary consciousness through the radicalization of form as much as through their politically radical lyrical content. After Gartside and Morley finished their studies, the band relocated to the Camden Town area of London, where they occupied a squat with like-minded punks. While only Gartside, Morley, and Jinx played instruments, the band operated as an extended collective, a group of up to 20 friends and co-squatters functioned as the philosophical and political arm of Scritti Politi, formulating the band's musical, economic, and promotional strategies. Quote, unquote, rehearsals often consisted of more talking than playing. In 1978, Scritti Politi released their first single on their own St. Pancras label. The song Skankblock Bologna establishes a few key features of the band's early style. A guitar is downstrummed, bare and ragged, draping itself across a sinewy bass line and a busy click-clacky drum part. The assemblage in the manner of their British post-punk contemporaries like the Slits and Public Image Limited is vaguely reminiscent of reggae structures and of Dub's deconstruction of those structures. Occasionally, the guitar offers a dry, stuttering lead. Gartside's singing manages to be both declarative and sweetly melodic, but it pointedly rejects the angry shouting of punk. The song's title, Skank Block Bologna, is meant to conflate the skanking style of dancing associated with Jamaican ska uh, and reggae with Gramsci's historic block, in which power is consolidated through a simultaneous marshalling of political, industrial, economic, and importantly, cultural forces. The title also expresses solidarity with the Movement 77 uprisings in Bologna the year before the single's release. So already you can see that Scritti Politi on top of the pops in 1984 can't be as inconsequential as it, as it appears. Later the year that the single was released, uh, December 5th of 1978, two years minus one day since the Anarchy Tour landed in Leeds, the band recorded the first of three Peel sessions for the BBC. Six months later, on the 20th of June 1979, 1979 they recorded their second Peel session. And by the end of 1979, 
they released the second session's four songs on their St. Pancras label, this time in conjunction with the fast-growing British independent label Rough Trade. A significant friction is generated when the second Peel session, EP of 1979, confronts the 1984 appearance on top of the Pops. In the supervening five years, everything appears to have changed. In 1979, Scritti Politi delivered their aesthetic manifesto in the form of the one minute and 47 second song called Mesthetics. functions as their aesthetic manifesto. Their political manifesto is slightly longer, requiring two minutes and six seconds and bearing the title hegemony. As Simon Reynolds suggests, there's more to this than just the lyrics. We must attend equally to the music, the sound, and the image of the band. We must also attend to the narrative that attended to the band at the time. As the one consistent member from 1979 to 1984, this narrative is Green Guard Sides. It is simultaneously a building's roman, a recovery story, and a sweeping revision of philosophical and political positions. 
What we are talking about here, to be completely honest about it, is a trajectory that has been seen by commentators and critics as a transition from art to entertainment. Uh, that is to say, from high to low, from autonomy to commodity. And here we see uh, a photograph of the early Scritti Politi in the late 70s and then the mid 80s Scritti Politi. What we hear in the early Scritti Politi is resistance, a resistance pointed in the case of aesthetics at aesthetic presumptions that a song should go cohere, that a pulse should be consistent, that a band should play together that a melody should ride the contours of the chord changes and rhythms that function as its foundation. Nevertheless, intention is retained as a confirming, one might say conforming, gesture. We know what we're doing. Yes, we know how it sounds. Like their mentors in absentia, art and language, Scritti Politi take none of the conventions of their field for granted. In fact, both art and language and the 1970s Scritti Politi see taking for granted as the root of the problem. That which is taken for granted soon starts to assume the status of the natural, immutable, universal, and eternal. Scritti Politi's song hegemony is pointed at just such social, political institutions and mechanisms, at the blind acceptance of values and judgments as commonsensical. Of course, we are welcome, encouraged even, to see the aesthetic naturalness and social common sense as symptoms of the same underlying danger, that of not knowing or noticing that one's taste, one's reading of works uh, of art, one's making of value judgments and categorizations, that one's very desires are a product of history, class, gender, acculturation, and the ideological state apparatus. Desire is a product of both nature and nurture but a nature and nurture, neither of which belongs solely to the listener or the musician, the work or the genre. The Red Crayola too have resisted conventions throughout their 50 year career, swerving at every juncture to avoid the expected and the already explored. Perhaps it was these shared resistances, perhaps it was each group's connection, direct and indirect to art and language that led the two groups, the Red Crayola and Scritti Politi to tour together in 1979. And here's a photograph of them uh, together on tour. That's Mayo Thompson, the leader of the Red Crayola on the far left, and uh, Green Gartside, a leader of Scooty Politi, second from the right. And then here's a uh, poster from that tour. By 1984, when Scooty Politi played Absolute on top of the Pops, they were eight years clear of the anarchy in the UK tour, which is to say that they were seven years from the Sex Pistols' God Save the Queen, going to number one or number two, depending on who's telling the story, on the UK charts, despite having been banned from airplay on the BBC and being pulled from the shelves of many national retailers. In the wake of the Pistols' success, major labels recognized punk as a source of youth enthusiasm and as a potential source for new sales. As a result, punk bands were signed in swaths, Shortly thereafter, a kind of defanged version of punk was invented and dubbed New Wave. At the same time, a host of bands formed with the intent of capitalizing on punk's genre-busting example. Inspired by a de-skilled approach to composition and performance, by a DIY approach to making and promoting records, and by a less polished sense of style, fashion, and presentation, these post-punk bands aim to expand on punk's rejection of the mainstream without embracing its back-to-basics musical formula. This was Scritti Politi's initial motivation and the scene out of which or into which it originally emerged. But by the early 1980s, punk was experiencing a backlash. Young bands and fans began to question the decidedly underground status of post-punk. If one of punk's radical subversions had been to reimagine who gets to be a musician, who gets to be in a band, then what's the use of that subversion if the new musicians solely populate underground bands on the fringe, leaving the old musicians, uh, the old model of the musician unperturbed in the mainstream? Post-punk bands who, like the early Scritti Politi, suffered for their art and for their independence, began to question if squat living, dumpster diving, bad health, bad drugs, and bad sex were worth it. Why shouldn't these new musicians reap the rewards previously enjoyed by the old musicians they sought to unseat? Likewise, the terms and the form of rock came under scrutiny. Whose music was this? White middle-class boys? Worse yet, was rock a black African-American form that had been appropriated by white middle-class boys without credit or compensation to their black forebears? With Jamaican music part of punk from the early days, with the new popularity of disco, with the rediscovery of, of American soul music, a new racial ethics and a new aesthetics began to emerge as an alternative to the notion of rockism. 
a mindset associated with race, class, gender, and a claim to authenticity that pop as a genre doesn't have and probably doesn't want. The bands who rejected rockism in favor of what was known in Britain as new pop, bands like New Order, The Art of Noise, ABC, and Human League, but also their managers and the press invented their own ism, entryism, to describe the object of their ambitions. Maybe more precisely, they invented the term to distance their ambitions from the very raucous accusation of selling out. Rather than suggesting, as the phrase selling out does, a retreat from, underground, from the underground and a surrender of rock's authenticity, entryism suggests an insistence on inclusion and being accepted into the club from which this post-punk generation had previously been excluded. <coughs> we might think of entryism as selling out, but with the poles reversed, something like selling in. As early as 1981, Gartside felt the pull. I should read this before. Marginal music has never transcended its own history or invaded the mainstream. As a consequence, it ends up asserting little other than its own marginality, its difference from the majority. But mere difference is not enough, especially when it soon created a tradition as stale as that of the mainstream, as stale and as self-enclosed. So Gartside reconsidered. He retreated to his parents' home in Wales, afflicted by a crisis of political and aesthetic faith. He wrote a manifesto, a plea, a plan of action, and some months later delivered it to his bandmates, Morley and Jinx. In order to mean something, Gartside argued, Scritti Politi would have to sell in. In order for their politics and their aesthetics to have any effect in the world, it would have to reach the world. The band would have to become pop stars. They would need to land on the radio and TV. Morley and Jinx were apparently and understandably skeptical, but after reading Gartside's screed, by some accounts it exceeds 100 pages, and after some long late night conversations, they agreed. Now, it's one thing to decide to become pop stars. It's quite another thing to manage it. Screedy Politi were hardly the only British band in the early 80s wanting to sell in, but none of the other entryist bands had the political and philosophical pedigree of Screedy Politi. What's more, and I think this is important, none of them had such a pedigree as learned at an art college. The early Scritti Politi's Marxist convictions and their Derridian, Wittgensteinian, Gramscian reading of the mechanisms of culture and language had been transmitted and received as communiques from headquarters as both motives and tactics for an anti-Thatcherite aesthetic militancy. And recall that while Thatcher only became prime minister in 1979, she had been leader of the Conservative Party in Britain since 75. By the early 80s, when Scruti Politi directed their collective energies at entryism, their relationship to the charts, to mass media, and to capital were necessarily different from that of their contemporaries. And now we will pursue that line of thought. The inner sleeve for the second Peel session uh, includes a collage suggesting items scattered on a tabletop in Scruti's squalid, if erudite, Camden squat. So, this appears to be, at least the way I see it, uh, to be a kind of a tabletop or a desktop uh, with items scattered around and then a, a book kind of planted in the middle. Uh, this tableau presents uh, bottle caps, a cigarette pack, the requisite punk rock safety pin, a bag of potato chips, a packet of Tate and Lyle fast dissolving sugar, and a band pin displaying Squiddy Politi's name and logo over there on the lower left. Um, Arranged across this tableau, set atop the scattered items on the table is what appears to be a book, open to pages 179 and 180. At the top of each page, in italics, the running heads supply the title, Scritto's Republic. Conjuring Plato's treatise on individual and collective justice, but attributed to a kind of philosophical avatar for the band, one Scritto, um, this text purports by implication to be something more than a band manifesto. Presented as the open pages of a published book replete with justified text, pages, pages numbered into the 180s, and a title conveyed by way of running headers, this text means to suggest both a deep intellectual rationale and an acknowledgment of the le legitimacy of that rationale within the sphere of philosophical discourse. In making sense of Scritto's Republic, it's helpful to remember Simon Reynolds' observation above. At Leeds College of Art and Design, Scritti Politi had been trained to emulate what Reynolds called art and language's hardcore critical sensibility. What Green Gartside would have learned from art and language would have included the idea that the object does not stand alone. It is supported by its discursive supplements. He would have learned that the relationship of the object, the painting, the sculpture, the movie, the song, to its supporting supplements is not simple, unidirectional, or hierarchical. 
One might characterize, characterize the relationship of the object to discourse as dialectical, the two sides testing each other in search for a third output, a synthesis that emerges as the more significant or more advanced output of the process. Alternatively, but similarly, one might think of this relationship as one of difference in the Derridian sense. Discourse constructs the object, representing aspects that are not of the object, and the object constructs the discourse, representing aspects that are not of the discourse. In so doing, each side constructs the meaning and identity of the other vis-a-vis -vis the traits, as Derrida would say. And I know that many pop theorists make the mistake of assigning complicated intellectual motivations to simple entertainments. For example, forcing Jacques Derrida onto Scritti Politi. But in this case, the imposition is no imposition at all. This is Scritti Politi's 1982 rough trade single, Jacques Derrida. <laughs> Greengartside's initiation into conceptual art, post-structuralism, and politics came at art college, but he was also an autodidact, self-educated from the outer margins of what he learned at Leeds. He sings of Jack Derrida, uh, because he'd only seen the name in print and didn't know the proper pronunciation. Nevertheless, some of Derrida's students heard the song and alerted their professor to the fact that an English pop group was singing his praises. Derrida invited Gartside to Paris, where the two had dinner together in the Beborg. It's true. Unbelievable, but true. Um, there are apparently um, uh, notes in both of their uh, sort of diaries from that, from that time uh, of the meeting. I've yet to get my hands on either of those, but, but hope to. Um, with songs, there is the opportunity for a kind of internal discourse in the form of lyrics. As we've seen in the early Scritti Politi recordings, Gartside leverages that discourse while also performing his anti-aesthetic, anti-hegemonic convictions musically. But it's easy to see why he couldn't leave it at that. Under the sway of art and language, persuaded by their rigor and militancy, Gartside felt obliged to supply his own supplements, his, his pre-production rationale, his post-production account of the process. And when I use the word account, I do so in both the narrative and budgetary senses. On the back of the uh, outer sleeve of the second Peel Session EP, the band includes the costs of the various stages of the manufacturing process, the cutting of the masters, the pressing of the vinyl copies, the printing of labels and sleeves, and so on, while also supplying the addresses and phone numbers of the companies who provided these services so that other bands could also seize the means of production. The specific nature of Squiddo's Republic as a discursive supplement to the second Peel Session EP is not difficult to ascertain. The text available to us on quote-unquote pages 179 and 180 begin with a critique of the truth claims of theory in general and of scientific Marxism <coughs> in, in particular. Bless you. Um, so here we have a little uh, blow-up of that text so we can see it more clearly. Uh, theory could not ultimately justify a particular political theory ideology above any other. And there could be no theory, no body of ideas, which had a or the claim to being concrete reality reflected or apprehended in thought. The axioms of Marxism were not objects of science, but those of discourse, and were developed, established, and used according to specific conditions. The songs on the EP, on this EP where this text uh, appears, still seem to operate within a framework of theory and Marxism, refusing to coalesce into a seamless commodity uh, while offering a short but astute summary of Gramscian critique. Yet the sleeve allows this outside message, seemingly from a source external or adjacent to the band, to interfere with the song's ideological aesthetic consistency. At the time of the EP's release, this contradiction could have been seen as a dialectical performance meant to produce a productive reconciliation. From where we sit now, knowing what we know, it is incumbent upon us to ask if the later new pop scritty was in fact this reconciliation, 
or if what we are witnessing as the divide between music and text indicates the beginning of a renunciation, conscious or not, of Scritti's political and philosophical convictions. By the end of the portion of Scritto's Republic that is visible on the EP sleeve, the analysis takes a Lacanian Christavan turn. Language is identified as the culprit, or perhaps as merely culpable, obscuring in the pronoun I the individuality of the subject to whom it refers, while also trapping speakers and writers and readers into narrow channels of experience and expression. Uh, language pre-exists our entry into it and defines what is normal and represses that which will not or cannot be covered or developed by its framework. To leave speech and language uninterrupted is to submit to the cultural order by which sexuality, thought, etc. is regulated. The text ends abruptly and tantalizingly in mid-sentence, just as it begins to suggest a rapprochement between language's carceral impulses and rock and roll's extra-linguicity. There is difficulty for productive language in beat music, where semiotic instability is a norm, is style, but, and it was a big but, sorry, I don't mean to end on the phrase big but, but that's how it goes. Um, the text seems to cut off, <clears throat> but only seems to, I think, so it only seems to cut off. What actually happens is a performance of the kind of interruption that considers the refusal to quote unquote submit to the cultural order by which sexuality, thought, etc., is regulated. And this is the most speculative claim that I will make about Scritti Politi. But I'm persuaded that as early as this, Scritti Politi's second release in 1979, we can already see the future. We can see them performing absolute on top of the pops five years later in 1984. When we, what we first read and then hear, but each of course is cross-referenced with the other, um, we hear Absolute as filtered by the text of the, sec of the Peel Sessions EP, and we read the EP text retroactively as filtered by the Top of the Pops performance. What we read and hear is a movement not just from the fringes to the mainstream, but a movement from the overt noise of language in the early recordings to the ineffable sounds of music. What Gartside seems to believe as of 1984 is that the explicit declarations and explanations of songs like Mesthetics and Hegemony and of texts like Scritto's Republic annul themselves in their own exposition. And that may be evident in that final statement there. There is a difficulty for productive language in beat music where semiotic instability is a norm, is style, but, and it was a big but. When Gartside uses the term beat music, and there's little doubt that Scritto is Gartside, he is sidestepping the linguistic problem of rock versus pop, but he is suturing the wound that separates the terms with a third term that is simultaneously the genesis of both, beat music. So beat music, as many of you probably know, was um, the term that was used in Britain for kind of early rock and roll music, um, as opposed to uh, other forms of pop music and non-pop music at the time. So um, rather than choosing a side between rock and pop uh, in at this point, um, Green Guard side is already kind of summoning a term from the past as a way to kind of uh, sidestep the problem of, of picking a side in terms of the rock versus pop debate. So uh, this term is simultaneously the... Uh, the genesis of both rock and pop, a suddenly new again term that has neither raucous nor entryist connotations. And he's declaring that in pop music, the coin of the realm is semiotic instability. In songs, signs don't stand still, don't stabilize, they don't signify. They shake, they rattle, they roll. Wap bop a loop bap a wap bam boom. At the moment that Scrito's text breaks off, we are confronted by what first seems like a random, incidental, or extraneous imposition of unrelated information. The bottom of page 180 includes a table, breaking down the words of a couple of sentences into their parts of speech, demonstrating substitutions along the paradigmatic axis. The sentences include references to these boys, or the substitutions some men, this boy, and a man. These subjects then walk either home, away, or out. We could see this as an announcement of Gartzai's intentions as he begins to turn away from the squat and principled isolation. Still, this impulse is subjected to the violence of language as a structuring restraint. And so the table performs the linguistic anxiety that, pla that plagues Gartzai. Below the table is a counting out rhyme identified as a Warwickshire folk rhyme. If the table demonstrates the straight jacketing restrictions of language, 
The counting out rhyme giddily performs the freedom of nonsense. The table represents the rudiments of language as a semantic code. The rhyme represents the rudiments of music as a patterned, sonic, non-semantic code, something like music. Visery, basery, bosery, vem, tisery, dazery, tozery, tem, hiram, gyrum, pakram, spiram, poplar, rolem, gem. In the liner notes to the Peel Session EP, if not yet in the musical and lyrical construction of its songs, Gartside is introducing a new tactic in his aesthetic program. He's beginning to doubt the eff efficacy of discursivity. The text suggests that rather than subverting the dual languages of music and lyric from within, as Scritti had done to this point, one could circumvent language entirely, leveraging the non-semantic codes of nonsense, rhyme, and beat music to simultaneously subvert the cultural order imposed by language and to engage with a joy that for Gartside is external to language. Whether we're talking about narrative structures, camera angles, harmonic systems, or brush strokes, artistic choices always relate to the history from which they emerge and, re and respond to the events and conditions, artistic and otherwise, of their time of production. Those who see artistic practice as inexorably tied to contemporary social, political, and economic practices tend to connect the codes of artistic production to the allowances and restrictions of the culture in which they are produced. By this account, we learn how to see the paintings, how to read the novels, how to hear the music of our time. This learning process involves the assimilation of the prevailing codes of our artistic moment. As Pierre Bourdieu notes, this doesn't mean that we're necessarily aware of either the code or of our decoding activity. So, and I know this is a very long quote, but I think it, it, uh, it's worth going through it. So Bourdieu says, the repeated perception of works of a certain style encourage the unconscious eternal internalization of the rules that govern the production of these works. Like rules of grammar, these rules are not apprehended as such and are still less explicitly formulated and capable of being formulated. For instance, lovers of classical music may have neither awareness nor knowledge of the laws obeyed by the sound-making art to which they are accustomed. But their auditive education is such that, having heard a dominant chord, they are induced urgently to await the tonic, which seems to him the natural resolution of this chord. And they have difficulty in apprehending the internal coherence of music founded on other principles. As right as this seems to me, it also seems that Bourdieu is under-reporting the extent of the coding at play. Describing the listener, who having heard a dominant chord, urgently awaits the tonic, which seems the natural resolution of this chord, Bourdieu leaves out crucial information. What are we listening to? Would this be as true of Schoenberg as it is for Bach? When we hear or think we hear a dominant chord in Nankoro or Mertzbau or Bratzmann, is the tonic the last thing we urgently await? I don't point this out in order to provincialize Bourdieu's observation, but on the contrary, in order to expand it. The code is not limited to the formal arrangement of units within the work. This arrangement could be said to be one code among many at play in the composition and reception of the work of art. But as we quickly see when testing Bourdieu's example against particular music, there is a second code that is just as crucial. This code extends beyond the work at hand, accounting for the tendencies of other works by the same artist. What's more, this code of tendencies is ideally understood as part of another code created by the relation of this artist's tendencies to tendencies in the work of the artist's contemporaries and predecessors. But even these codes are subject to another overlaid code, uh, that of the meaning of appropriative gestures, quotation, the adoption of structures and styles. All music partakes of these practices. As Carl Sagan once said, if you wish to make an apple pie from scratch, you must first invent the universe. <laughs> no songwriter invented the idea of song from whole cloth. The act of borrowing forms and approaches encodes a relationship to the appropriated original. This too must be decoded in order to thoroughly read the work. Green Gartside was well aware of the origami-like nature of coding and decoding a song. As he told the New Music Express in 1982, in terms of readings or writings then, a song is as closed or as exploded as you or I wish to make them which isn't to reduce it to some horrible, anarchic, endless relativism. What's often mistaken for relativism is actually the deeply complicated overlay of codes. We do not listen simply to the sound. We do not listen simply with our ears. 
Instead, we listen to the overlay of codes that license and legitimate the sound to function in certain ways and to mean certain things. When Scritti Politi adopts new pop, soul, and R&B, we as listeners decode not just the quote-unquote music itself, but also the stylistic adoptions. We hear Scritti Politi on top of the pops in 1984, rejecting rockism, embracing entryism. We hear Gartside, the Welshman, turning to African-American sources. But we also hear Scritti Politi shearing themselves from one branch of the pop music tree and grafting themselves onto a different branch. What most critics heard was simple. Scritti Politi sells out. Or Scritti Politi disavows rock in favor of pop. What Gardside wanted us to hear in 1984 was a rejection of the textuality of the early Scritti Politi, and he's never really changed his mind. When those recordings were compiled for CD release in 2005, Gartside wrote that the early material, quote, sounds like some anti-produced labor of negativity, a kind of structurally unsound and exposed by design and default, unquote. So I wonder, must we hear Scritti Politi's absolute on top of the pops in 1984 merely as an embrace of new pop entryism? Must we submit to Gartside's authorial intentions and hear the later Scritti as a liberatory run around the restraints, language, the restraints of language and signification? Or, despite Gartside's best intentions, do the codes stack up in such a way that we have to listen outside the song, outside the pop cultural moment, to the codes of Marxist capital and Gramscian hegemony? Are we obliged to decode our own decoding of the codes? which is to say, must we hear Scritti Politi in the 80s as a deconstructive enterprise? Must we attend to Joissance, the Lacanian term that Gartside chose as the name for his songwriting publishing company? If so, wouldn't Lacan allow that the unconscious, Gartside's or the songs or our own, structured as it is like a language, may be sending and receiving messages that none of the above intended? The significance of Scritti Politi playing absolute on top of the pops in 1984 may in fact be generated a long way from the top of the pop studios, from Green Gartside's song, from Scritto's Republic. And what we are listening to when we listen to this song may not be the song at all. Its meanings may be too big, too complicated, too coded for that. Maybe the only way to really hear the song, to read it, to decode it, to experience its jouissance is to engage in a conversation that extends beyond the song's boundaries, its rhythms, its melody, its lyric. A conversation that starts before the song is written and ends or pauses somewhere else many years later, maybe here, maybe now. But the conversation has to start somehow, and that's why the song exists, to elicit a response, to, to initiate the dialogue, the shallow, dispersed territory of what we call, for convenience's sake, the song. Ultimately, the song does its work outside of itself. As Gartside admitted of another song on the same album as Absolute, obviously, I couldn't make that point in a three-minute pop song. All I could do was, was allude to it and hope that someone like you would happen along me and say, that's a stupid fucking lyric. Thank you. <clears throat> This recording was produced by Mara Schwitt-Vegar for Liquid Architecture on the land of the Boon Wurrung and Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We acknowledge them as the traditional owners of this land and recognize that sovereignty has never been ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. Liquid Architecture is an Australian organization for artists working with sound and listening. To learn more head to liquidarchitecture.org.au